Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you're in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what is a bright but cool autumn morning here in the capital is Habib Mohammed. Habib is a director at ISRA UK Feed the Poor, a charitable concern based in Birmingham with a mission to relieve poverty worldwide and instill change, hope and prosperity within people's lives. Um, Habib, very warm welcome to you today and thank you so much for joining us. Hi there, thank you for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure and thank you so much for your time and joining us on the programme once again. Um Normally, at this point in the show, we tend to dive straight into the subject of leadership. But considering the ongoing COVID situation, Habib, I feel it's appropriate that we start from there and approach the subject from that angle, because it's proven to be such a significant challenge for all leaders within all walks of life. But for yourselves, um, heading up a charity, just to what extent has it affected things for you? Uh, As a charity, our operations uh, have been very, very difficult to make movements, especially locally. And even abroad, because we do most of our work abroad. Mm-hmm. Uh, so our partners abroad, uh, obviously, have the same situation. We have lockdown, etc. Uh, authority stopping them from movement. So we we had a lot of problems delivering aid uh, more close to home. Here, we actually got more busy during the period of COVID nineteen, because mm. in the area where we actually situated where we work, there is a lot of dependency, uh, and a lot of people were uh, forced to stay home, couldn't go to work. We have high unemployment, of course. So we we actually stayed our food bank, which was running off the back of our winter program for the homeless within Birmingham City Centre, actually was extended then into COVID. And we became sort of like a focal point then for a food bank. So we, mm. a few of us, became very busy. Although we had to put about five or six of our charity shop staff on furlough leave. So we had that worry as well to keep them employed. Well, our events and our fundraising team were so busy during the COVID period with the food bank. So that's how we were really affected in that way. We actually got more busy, believe it or not. Yeah, I can imagine so, because um, while um, there's essentially restrictions on some of the activities that you can do outside the UK because of what it's been doing to the travel yep. sector, for example, um, there's been so much to do closer to home, of course, in helping the uh, the vulnerable who've needed support during this time. And one thing that the pandemic has really amplified, we've seen as well, is some of the sort of deep-rooted inequalities as well, by which sorts of communities and demographics are more vulnerable to the virus for various reasons. And I can imagine that that's something that you feel quite passionately about and is something that you'd like to see some real leadership from the government taken on going forward from this as we understand more about that? Absolutely. We we did do a, a few, we've done a two-year programme now with the homeless because the homeless has increased, especially in the streets of Birmingham City and around the area where I work, which is very poor, as I say. It seems the homeless are everywhere now. Uh, and they, I feel, were not protected through COVID. And they, they were still at the traffic lights uh, asking for money. They were still in city centre. Yeah. Uh, they weren't being protected. I know some of them were put into accommodation overnight, etc. We didn't see that in practice. We saw them very vulnerable. And in fact, we had a surge of homeless coming to our food bank, being sent from the uh, job centre, because that's the only way that we can actually 
uh, clarify who is in need or not. Because they can't just knock on the door. They have to get some sort of uh, ref- uh, referral. And so the job mm-hmm. centre would refer them to us. And we've seen an increase in that, in that demographic of type of people who are homeless, who were left with nothing, but were not protected, in my opinion, by, by the local council or even the government, local government. And your activities are going to be so, so important in the months to come as well, aren't they? Because um, we've seen, of course, in recent weeks, the introduction of the sort of new three-tiered alert system for COVID-19. Just for the benefit of those tuning in today, we're recording on the 22nd of October 2020. Um, And as tier three restrictions do come into place in certain regions and businesses are forced to close and then jobs become more at risk, it does then stretch the resources more of your food banks, of your charities that are working as hard as you are to feed the vulnerable and then just this week as well um, we've also seen the vote in parliament about um, the extension of free school meals that did not get through of course Mm. so that's something as well which is going to put more strain on charitable organizations while MPs try and work together to find a more tangible long-term solution to end sort of poverty and um, food shortages. Yes uh, we're making more visits to schools actually we're now we're now considering a plan to make food baskets up or food um, parcels up direct through supermarkets uh, online because obviously social distancing is getting very difficult to send people out there. People are getting, there's more people getting ill now from the COVID. So we're getting requests from schools, uh, even from individuals that are phoning us desperate uh, for their children. They can't go outside. Um, they don't know what to do. Can they go outside? Mm-hmm. Can somebody come to their house? So we're getting all of these type of inquiries. We have found that schools, especially local schools around us, have really tapped into ourselves. And yeah, we, we don't have enough parcels to go around. Uh, it is getting to, but we have a lot of generous, generous uh, donations from organisations, from supermarkets, uh, from the likes of Fair Share, which I'm sure everybody's familiar with Fair Share. Mm. Uh, that, they've been awesome. They have been fantastic. Really have. It's certainly good to see that collaboration between charitable organisations and we've seen a lot of real community spirit and national unity during this time in that sense, haven't we? As People have come together to not just keep businesses open and keep vital services being provided, but also just keep feeding the uh, the vulnerable and helping their communities as well. And if we, sort of, if we think about that for a minute, just in a bit more depth and sort of move away from the doom and gloom of it all, are there any other positives that you've seen, Habib, during this time that you think we can sort of harness and take forward from all of them? Uh, cooperation, as you just said, as you just alluded to, uh, cooperation between all types of uh, organisations, uh, and let's face it, uh, also ethnic groups and religious groups as well are coming together, mm. uh, which you wouldn't have expected before. Uh, but it does happen anyway, even before COVID, within a place like Birmingham, there are a lot of ethnic groups, a lot of religious groups, and we do work together, uh, but it's not recognised. But I think what COVID has done, as I put that to the forefront, that is it's irrelevant your background. Uh, are you hungry? Have you have you lost work? Are you struggling? We can help you. Uh, and you can go to any organisation. And we, we are fundamentally an Islamic charity. But our ethos is that every human being is a human being, regardless of their background. So it's that in need, that in need. Uh, and I think that's come out a lot uh, through all organisations, whether charitable or not. It's, it's not about who, what you are with your background. Are you in need at this moment? Can we help you? We will bring the food to you if you can't come. Uh, is there anything else we can do for you? We can refer you on. Uh, we can guide you, etc. Uh, and that has been a positive. If there is a positive to come out of that, that's been one of the positives that, that as far as I can see. 
it certainly is. You're absolutely right. And it's a hugely inspiring message and mission there that you do have as well. And it has been wonderful to see this activity in the community, particularly during this time, because it's going to be so, so important. And just keeping things positive as well. Um, one thing that a lot of people that have come onto the programme have said is that they've learned an awful lot from this experience in sort of how it's galvanised them and the people around them and their communities. Because they often say, don't they, that you learn more in times of adversity than when things are going well as such. And have you found yeah. that yourself, Habib, that you've learned quite a lot from this? I, I have. I have. Um, I mean, at one point, uh, I was on my own in the office sometimes because I'm, I'm, I'm one of the, the, the main workers. I couldn't leave it. I'm the director. So the office was run on my own. But I had so much. Uh, I could tap into so many people uh, on the Zoom, particularly get advice and even encouragement, actually. An email encouragement, a thank you. Uh, it was just so encouraging to see that we've been recognised that we have come together, we, we put aside work that we couldn't do mm. and replaced it with very important work that needed to be done. Um, and, and, and that is inspiring, actually. Uh, just a simple recognition. Uh, and it would be nice uh, if there were uh, other organisations and people recognised by the government, perhaps, and, took, and the government took advice from the likes of us, from our, from our organisation, how best to mobilise, uh, how best you can identify the need within any area. Yeah, that's certainly positive. And um, when you talk about as well, um, having to sort of work in the office on your own and then mobilise your team using technological means like Zoom and things like that. Yeah. Um, how did you find it sort of leading everybody from a distance in that sense? Was it quite an easy transition? No, no, it wasn't. It was challenging. Everybody had to get used, obviously, to using the, the equipment, using the Zoom. Uh, we have to move quickly because, as you, as you remember, all the shelves were emptying. You couldn't even buy I, uh, IT equipment, could you? Mm. You go into you, you couldn't even order it online. It takes two weeks. So the sort of uh, emergency, I, I called it emergency project to, to my team. I said, this is one of our, imagine we're just doing a project. We're abroad. There is a need. We've now done an emergency project within Birmingham. Imagine the emergency project is feeding. It's feeding. So it was, it was very difficult at the beginning to get people to understand what we needed to do because everybody was a bit lost. Uh, where, where do we move? What do we do? So I, I felt that I was on a, maybe an 18-hour day sometimes. Uh, but, but so were my, my colleagues. Some of them were ill as well. Uh, and it was the unknowing, what, what, what is this COVID? How we were affected? So at the beginning, it was very difficult. But as you say, in times of adversity, you get used to it and you always come out stronger, don't you? That's exactly it. It's galvanised so many people, despite the fact that it's been a very challenging and sensitive time for so many. And that's one real positive, as we've already discussed, that's come out of this. And keeping it positive as we sort of look to the future now, just before we wrap things up on the show today, Yom Habib. And with regards to the next 12 months, we know we're going to have to get through quite a tricky winter period before we can really think about the longer term future at all. But if we yeah. sort of pretend we have a crystal ball for a moment and can look into the future, um, ideally in 12 months' time, where would you like uh, the charity to be and what is it that you're really hoping to achieve? Uh, I'd like us now to focus more on the local um, activities that we're doing and build on our successes here because we've, we've discovered that the poverty within Birmingham is more than I thought. Uh, I always felt very secure in, in the UK um, that no matter what happened to me, the state would always look after me. And I've, I have felt that because I come from a poor background. Uh, we were in the state, but we always had food and we could always go to school uh, for meals. And we had free meals, etc. Et 
So I would say it's part of our job now to really try and identify more the need as we come out of COVID, that people are still going to remain poor. Uh, and COVID has identified the problem is, is really deep. And so I would like our organisation to look more uh, locally to helping the poor people of all back again of all backgrounds. And I think the government and the local council need to have some sort of solution to push people back into employment straight after and to use organisations like ourselves to actually identify those people. That's what I would hope. Mm, yes, and there's going to take some serious leadership to make all of that happen. But it is um, a hugely important and a hugely inspiring mission as well, Habib. So I really, really hope that we do start to see that vision being borne out over the uh, the next few months. And indeed, over the course of the next year, I think it would actually be great, just given how brilliant it's been having you on today to catch up and welcome you back onto the show, just to see how things are starting to tick along. And we can just assess at that point and analyse what has changed and what more needs to be done. Good luck, Tim. That'd be fantastic, yeah. I'd welcome that opportunity as well. I've thoroughly enjoyed having you on the programme today. And uh, most importantly as well, um, Habib, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on in the meantime as well until we do hopefully get to speak again. Thanks so much. Thank you as well. Likewise, Habib, and I'd also extend that message to all of the listeners tuning into the programme today as well. Please do stay well, look after yourselves and be considerate of other people because it does make such a key difference in saving lives. Um, It was a pleasure to welcome Habib Mohammed, Director at ISRA UK Feed the Poor, onto the programme today. Um, Next up on the show, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Now, during his illustrious professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 professional goals for various clubs but of course he remains most well known for that famous treble in England's 4-2 win over West Germany back at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. It saw England lift the dual remate trophy and become the um, first England team and only England team to date to have won a World Cup title. It remains England's only honour in football Um, and it made Sir Jeff the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick within the final of a FIFA World Cup because since then nobody has managed to replicate the feat. Um, he'll be coming on to the show to not just look back at that historic day in 1966 and some of the other highlights of his career, but he'll be talking about the importance of robust leadership throughout those years and leaving a message of thanks for our wonderful NHS who've been doing everything that they can during this most trying time. That will be coming up shortly. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may, may it last. Absolutely. Thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, again, that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and Goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody, I'd like to um, 
repeat what I achieved, uh, it will be someone like Harry, who's a fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm, want England to be successful. I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I will not want to bury it. And I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my uh, my achievements about the team being successful, whether I got two or three, in one sense is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, if the game's nearly finished, I'm never going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, hand still Kowski, the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours and it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, and making, it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life an element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by 
the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it. And, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And, and also, it was also, for me, fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective, uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS, fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that, I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about going to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be around to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, he is the best coach he has worked with. And that's, just, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey 
knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was, I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a, you've got a, a coach, it's a team coach, who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who's then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and from all over the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my, in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching and management so you can learn as much from people making mistakes you can learn also from making your own mistakes mm. you can do something in the past that think well, like that was a really stupid thing to do and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again and it, it is important in all of life you learn from your mistakes people will make mistakes uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning it's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, During your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and froing between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac. It's not a big long road um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, maybe because it was a, 
a cul-de-sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so as you three of us play football, but amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in. Uh, flying, you know, and making balsa wood gliders, and uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, we were actually. But that that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the. the the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was had a big influence going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton even Jack Charlton his brother didn't know which was his best foot he, he was fantastic but I was pretty pretty um, um Two-footed, and a lot of the hat tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child. Although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my my story is a friend of my father. I know the guy's name called Jock Redfern. Unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leading age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial w- with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leading age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, Although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about, as I, I kind of put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously 
try me. I was a midfield player then or centre half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had the one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got Norton and Norton on out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game from there. I thought a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, the V Lancashire up. Up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years. Extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September, October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23, 24 games no 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a midfield mm. player so um, quite changed dramatically um, that was 60 62, 63 season the three years before the World Cup and when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, and not just tipping balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd you, have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remembered what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky. Very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banks, he was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me 
And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that that has come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that, A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times, uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham, we, it was a great time with the club. And I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the, the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi-final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as, as I always jokingly say, 
I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West West Brom actually got up that year, but I've made very little contribution to that success that club had. So um, yes, it, uh, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it long term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters, and my wife and she was. Uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there, so that was that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a just a. I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about I think a month. I think it was, and I enjoyed the experience, and I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. <laughs> New kitchen. <laughs> So it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's, I think the, that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe, uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you finish playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke with people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend and, and I always jokingly say you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70 and I think the, the whatever the word is I'm not sure adulation or recognition or whatever it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years not, not certainly um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was, a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management or mental courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alfred Ramsey, because I take it into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alfred Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out, or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. 
ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise, thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.